Welcome to the Van Patten Podcast. Not vegan, not politically correct, just a whole lot of fun. What's up, everybody? Thank you for joining me on another awesome podcast. Today's guest, we have none other than Jimmy Lowe, otherwise known as Sober Dude Fishing. In today's episode, we talk about ambassadorships, bass tournaments, how we can get more people involved, everything in between. So thank you for listening. Stay tuned. Have fun. Stay safe. right it looks like uh looking at your instagram that you got a whole a whole bundle of uh different uh sponsorships or flow deals or ambassadorships or whatever right i do yes how did how did that i mean obviously social media is like kicking off and stuff but is that just from the tournament game or how did all that stuff start out a lot of it has to do with it yeah so my first my first kind of ambassador deal ever was through rack addicts Yep. Um, Are they out of St. George? Yes, out of St. George. So my son actually works for Rack Addicts now. Oh, really? Yes. So there are like, you know, on social media, you see a lot of companies that aren't real companies, but they're an actual legit company. I haven't heard of them other than through you. Yes. So there have, do you ever remember the brand Sneaky? Yeah. So it's the same guy. Their business deal went down between him and his partner, some time ago. And when that went south, Sneaky went away. He took the rights that he had and created Rack Addicts. Gotcha. It's interesting to me, um, you know, previously working at Hydro Dip and stuff, I was kind of in the the back scenes of some of the outdoor industry. It's interesting how small of a circle all of this really is. You know, oh, absolutely. Ten guys have four different companies. They branch off make three more companies, you know, it's, it's kind of crazy. Yeah. And, you know, and then of, of course, social media, it just kind of grew from there. I, I got in the tournament fishing. Um, I became on, I, I got on the pro staff with Wu Tungsten. Um, I was with Angler Tungsten there for a while. They just didn't offer, they didn't offer as many products as I needed to kind of grow in the tournament scene. Yeah. So I went to a larger company with the same perks and benefits. Um, and then uh, Yellow Tech, they're an awesome company. You know, all, all the professional tournaments have to have a camera rolling on their boat all the time. I, I like a secondary camera, I guess, because the guys that have cameramen on their boat, they have to have a secondary camera. And that product allows you to plug directly into the lights of your boat. Therefore, it lets you run your camera all day without having to charge batteries in between. Is that just like a accountability thing? Having to yes. have a, oh, gotcha. Yep, okay. absolutely. So uh, how, how is this whole tournament thing going? I was kind of scrolling through your Instagram a couple of days ago. seems like you got a first place a while ago. Are you just doing like local St. George stuff or? What, um, what yeah. Doing? So the, the main tournament series I fish is Suba, which 
you know, this was my first full season with Suba, and I I guess they had liked me enough that I did well enough for a first-time tournament fisher this year that their their uh, vice president stepped down, and they nominated me, and I was voted in to be the new vice president of Suba. What is what does Suba stand for? Southern Utah Bass Anglers. Oh, gotcha. Okay. So, so yeah, that's kind of our little local local scene, and then we, we've got a couple of different ones. Um, I don't fish the entire other tournament series just because it is it. They usually are within a week or so of each other, okay. and you know, just trying to do too many tournaments that in a shorter period of time doesn't you know it's financially tough to do them all is it pretty expensive to get into that tournament stuff honestly i have never fished well i'll take that back i took uh or i fished a catfish derby out in like huntington or whatever you know but um never really fished like a a bass tournament at all is it pretty expensive i mean i've seen from like the guggen squad guys and you know some of those dudes that seems pretty expensive but is it like entry fees or just travel expenses and stuff Uh, it's a combination of the two you know i went to havasu last march and fished um one of the much larger tournament series and it was i think 350 bucks for an entry fee and then you know you've got your pre-fishing day so i was down there two days beforehand so it's you know it's a six-hour drive for me to and from plus I mean, the Lake Havasu is like, I don't know, like 40,000 square miles. Not not quite that many, but it, it's a really Jeez. big lake. It's like, yeah. I think it's 23 miles to the dam, and then it goes clear the hell up to Lake Mead. So, I mean, it's, it's really big. So, when you're pre-fishing, you know, at gas at four-something a gallon for premium – Mm-hmm. five bucks a gallon in your boat for two days of practice and then the day of the tournament plus hotel and lodging and food for those two days plus the day yeah. of you know if you don't bring home a check you've pretty much lost out on a couple thousand bucks yeah that's a good point i i don't know why but i didn't really picture or uh put in any of like the the small stuff like the airbnbs the fuel costs the food all that stuff yeah is it uh like just top three get uh get the cash or how does how does that typically work with the so stuff it, that you're doing yeah in, in our suba tournaments our local tournaments is it's paid out the top three um the tournament Dang. that i fished down in havasu that's based on how many people are in the field so there were 70 there were 78 teams and Based on however many teams they have or how many boats they have in a tournament, they pay out a certain amount. So this it, up to I think they they allow up to a hundred teams, and they pay to sixteenth place for a hundred teams. If it's anything less than that, say so I think it's for every ten less than that, they knock off a place. So I think they paid out the thirteenth or something like that on that tournament. And are, I took, are those I took guys fit. getting? Are those guys getting like what two hundred bucks or something like some chump change? Like um, no, so so like the top, I think it's the top eight in in that tournament brought home decent checks, and then pretty much after eighth, you pretty much got 
your entry fee doubled. So like, I think hmm. from like eight to 13th, it was a $600 payout. Shoot. That's not bad, man. I mean, obviously no. probably not going to cover all the expenses, but enough for some beers and to lick the wounds afterwards, I guess. Well, yeah. I mean, it pretty much pays for your fuel on top of your entry fees, which is a huge mm-hmm. help. And that yeah. was kind of that, that was kind of the, the only way we were actually, I had some uh, help from one of my sponsors to pay for fuel to go down to that tournament. Gotcha. That was one of my questions is, are these, you know, uh, sponsors that you have, are they actually helping you with tournament costs or are they just providing you lures, rods, you know, whatever? Mostly, mostly discounted equipment. Um, gotcha. I did have the one help out for fuel. Um, that was Corbett Custom Baits. And then the other guys that sponsor me pretty much give me everything at a discount. And some are, some are a lot better than others. And it's all based on, for me, I, I look for stuff that's, um, I have to believe in it in order to even ask to be sponsored by somebody. I, I'm not just going to go looking for kind of just, you know, the clout. Mm-hmm. So my Impulse Rod sponsorship, I get 30% off rods and I... I really believe in their rods and they're made right here in the U S everything's made out of, uh, out of Texas. So that, that was kind of one of those things that, you know, if I can't keep it local, I want to keep it here <laughs> type of yeah, thing. Yeah. In the U S sure. Yeah. Let's talk about those rods a little bit. I've never heard of that brand at all. I mean, I'm not really into the bass scene stuff. Are they mostly like medium, heavy, heavy rods or are they selling a whole gamut of stuff? No, they sell a whole gamut of stuff. So one of the greatest topwater fishermen ever to play the game is El Roland. And he's actually designed several of their rods for them. And so they, they have everything from spinning rods. Um, they have their salt series rods, which is more of that saltwater type of rod. Mm-hmm. Um, they have all the different technique specific stuff, anywhere from ultra finesse to heavy punching rods like you know like a 7-eleven extra heavy sure so and, and you know they feel like a custom rod but that's that was what i liked about them um because i've looked at a guy here and a local guy that builds custom rods and he was looking he's like yeah i can build you a custom rod but this is who i get my blanks from this is where i source my parts from and he was still going to charge me like 380 bucks to build a rod Oof. i'm like or I can ask these guys to let me be, be become part of their team and have 100% American source product built in Texas for a lot less money and have yeah. that same type of feel. Even That's though awesome. it's not custom built for me, it feels like it is. Sure. Now, I mean, that's similar in the hunting industry, man. Like, you know, the, the brands that I represent or, um, I sponsored by, I kind of have the whole vetting process, you know, I got to use it for a while before I ever, you know, throw out a discount code or, uh, even want to be a a member of their team. You know what I mean? Right. Yep. That's interesting. Even going back to bucked up, I, before I even became part of the bucked up team 
when I first got with Rack Addicts, I, I worked the show with Rack Addicts down in Vegas. And it was a hunt expo. And they had a bunch of the free samples of the bucked up samples. And I ended up with a bunch of those samples. It was about the time I was starting to really start going to the gym. And all of these other pre-workouts and stuff, I would crash afterwards. Or I'd get diarrhea. It, it was just, it was never good. And I tried those. And I was like, holy shit, this is good stuff. So I started ordering their product and using it for like six months. My wife and I used it. And... I felt great. So I asked to become an ambassador. And at that time, you know, I was in stage of really deciding, like, you know, I was working out a bunch, but I was also fishing a bunch. And the majority of my Instagram posts, all my social media stuff was really based around fishing. And I didn't feel like I was doing them justice by not giving them, you know, my portion of my word, like I said, I would. Sure. So I talked to them. They're like, well, when our bucked up outdoors starts to take off, contact us again. We'd love to have you back. Yeah. So I've just been kind of holding off waiting for that to happen because they don't really have that, that outdoor following yet. It's surprising. Like they do yeah. in the fitness world, but. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, their their socials are pretty big on the supplement side, but side of the house, you're right. But um, with a name like Bucked Up, you'd think, you know, branding wise and stuff, they would it would be blowing up. But you're correct that I still think they're kind of on that precipice right now. And yeah, and they are. And, you know, they've kind of branched out and like dabbled in the seasoning side of things. You know, that's more of their outdoor side is like uh all of their seasonings pair really well with with game meat, like wild game. Mm-hmm. Like I haven't found one that I don't like yet. So I use their seasonings too. Um, they do have, you know, they have some other options that are, that are kind of more geared toward the outdoor scene, I guess. But like they sell meats. They sell, uh, what is it, Wagyu beef. Like, I went to their facility in Salt Lake, and you can buy beef there. You can buy lamb there. Like, they sell – I'm don't. i not real sure where they source that, so I couldn't really say, but they have a whole array of butchered cut meats that you could buy as well. That's crazy. I, I, I wasn't familiar with any of that stuff. That's incredible, man. Yeah, they, you know, they, 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 they're really starting to dabble in a lot of stuff. And, you know, they're local. They're – based out of salt lake so yep no that's awesome man that's uh that's i've been trying to affiliate when we very first started we kind of branched off and we made a lot of mistakes of just like trying to connect with every single person out there that was willing to share our posts and stuff but you know as the company grows and and as i get a little bit older it's we're taking a little bit more time, you know, like really wanting to vet these people. And if we put our name on it, we want it to actually be legitimate. You know what I mean? That stuff matters. Yeah, absolutely. I, you know, I kind of did the same thing when I first started dabbling in the whole Instagram thing, you know, it was kind of something that I didn't know anything about like zero. And, um, there's actually somebody I worked with. was like, Oh, you got to start 
dude, you fish a ton. You should start posting these on Instagram. I'm like, I don't even know what Instagram is. <laughs> when so was it kind of went from there and, you know, immediately you start having these people reach out to you wanting to collaborate and stuff like that. And of course, you know, just trying to grow. Yeah. I didn't really know anything about it. I just started accepting all these offers and, you know, they all fall short either on my part because I didn't really believe in the product or whatever the case may be. Um, yep. so, you know, so I've just, I've just kind of learned. So I, yeah, I just really recently, um, was accepted to be a brand ambassador for sportsman's warehouse. Oh, heck yeah. And, and I, I'm there probably six days a week. After so, actual sportsman's? Yes, because we have one in St. George. Oh, I heard so, recently, maybe you'd be the guy to ask. I heard recently that they decided to, I don't know how the back end works, but, you know, there was rumors last year, two years ago, whatever it was, that Bass Pro Cabela's was going to purchase them. But then I heard another rumor recently that they decided to say no and they're going to they're gonna stay their own company. You know anything about that? So that was the rumor I heard as well. And the manager I spoke with that I was, I mean, I spoke to him almost every day because I was there early on in, in fishing. I was there trying to learn as much as I could about the baits and all that stuff. And that was the last I heard as well is they were going to sell to Bass Pro Shop. I don't know if that merger went down or not. Sadly, I can't completely say. Yeah. But he left as that was going down because he didn't want to be part of it. Yeah, I thought I saw something recently that they uh, they decided not to do it, which I hope. I mean, honestly, um, I don't know how it's been around your area, but the Cabela's that we have moderately local to us, you know, a few hours away or whatever, um, kind of took a little bit of a hit uh, after Bass Pro and the Cabela's merger happened. You know, I don't know if they were just – uh, the last time I was there, they were just changing inventory. So it was kind of gutted or um, maybe it was COVID era, you know, sourcing issues or whatnot. But even talking to a lot of the employees down there, they didn't seem super jacked about the merger. You know, I'm I'm not a fan of monopolies and, and one company having all this power and stuff. So I hope that they stay, you know, uh, a, a separate company. But, you, you know, it since you mentioned that they didn't sell it, it, it kind of makes sense because when I was speaking to the, the ex manager of the store there, he did all the purchasing and stuff. And he said that what you're going to see is a lot more of the Bass Pro. Those, some of those brands merging into sportsman's warehouse, which I haven't seen. They still carry the exact same product as they used to. None mm -hmm. of that, you know, the XPS stuff from Bass Pro, None of that stuff, none of the labeling, labeling, any of that came to the store. And, and I've been into several. I went into like three of them two weeks ago in Salt Lake. And same situation. It, it's all, you know, they've, they've modified their store a little bit to make it a little more aesthetically pleasing sure. um, when you walk around. Other than that, they're the exact same products. They haven't brought in any products that are specifically branded um and specifically sold at bass pro shop so it's interesting it's something i probably ought to look into 
Yeah, no, that's that's cool. How, so how did you get hooked up uh, being an ambassador with those guys? Just being there all the time? You reach out to them? Did they reach out to you? Tell me the story. No, it was it was kind of an invite from Instagram, actually. So, I you know, I follow Sportsman's Warehouse. I tag them in a lot of stuff. I'm there, like I said, without Sportsman's Warehouse, I probably wouldn't be as far into fishing as I am. Because I'm one of those guys that, I want to feel, touch, and use a product, you know, as much as I can before I actually take it out in the field. Yeah. And, you know, so many people order from Tackle Warehouse, and that's fine for some things. But when it comes to a rod and a reel, I want to touch it and feel it and see if it's going to jive with the way I fish and hold my rod and reel combos. Mm -hmm. So I choose to go to my local sportsman's and – Dude, the, the the array of rods they have, their their selection is is pretty dang good for for such a small store. And a lot of times the rods that I use, they're out in tackle warehouse, and they have them in stock in Sportsman's Warehouse. So, you know, there's times that I'll go, say I'm looking for a specific reel, and they're out of stock at Sportsman's but I can get it and have it in two days from tackle warehouse. I'll do that because I've had the chance to play with it. Yeah. But you know, yeah, it was kind of one of those things where it was, I kept getting emails of uh, product offers and stuff like that, you know, at a discount. And, and then I got a, got a, uh, an Instagram post. It was kind of an offer and I'm like, okay, I want to see if this is actually from sportsman's warehouse to become an ambassador. And, and it was, it, you know, it links directly to their, to their page. Not, you know, it's not like one of the sports of the warehouse underscore with yeah. a thousand followers or anything like <laughs> yeah. that. Yeah. <laughs> you know, they always try to get you. So yeah. I applied, I, I, you know, they have this, this, uh, third party sources called crew fire, which is kind of their recruiting and ambassador page area. I went on and I, I applied and, very next day I was accepted. So I was like, oh, that's kind of cool. The difference between their ambassador program and other people's is it's based on interaction with the people that are the other ambassadors. So say you were an ambassador and you posted a photo and Sportsman's Warehouse was tagged in it the sooner you like that photo and comment and interact with that person, the more points you get toward free products. What an interesting um, business philosophy you're building. I mean, they're building a community, so to speak, you know, yes. ambassador community. Yeah. And, and it's not, so they're not just, it's not just their brand specific stuff. So like, and you know, you put in your phone number and stuff like that. So when somebody throughout the ambassador program posts and they'll, so, so if they post to Instagram, it automatically sends you out the link via text message. The sooner you like and, and interact with that person, the more points you get toward free products. And it doesn't take a lot. You know, I think if you like and comment within the first, 24 hours you get like 60 points well you start earning free product at 200 points wow so i mean it, it adds up super quick 
that's very unique you know most uh uh ambassadorships that i've been involved with or talk to other people about are not a far stretch away from just affiliate marketing you know? yeah absolutely but yep. uh that is that is the first time i've heard i'm sure that there's more i'm sure somebody's going to comment on this and say x y and z did but uh that's interesting, man. That's the first time I personally have ever heard of that type of an ambassadorship. I really like that idea, though. Yeah, I'm, I'm anxious to see how it kind of progresses. You know, I, I don't know how new the their ambassadorship program is. I don't know how long, you know, they've been kind of working this direction with it. I've read some of the, the prior comments from other ambassadors saying that, you know, they've been doing this for a year and they haven't been offered anything and... You know, but you you still have to to put in some work in order to get something out of it. You can't just say you're an ambassador and do zero and expect a return. Right. Well, I mean, and and that's what it should be. I mean, I think there is a lot of I don't know, for lack of a better term, clout chasers that just want that on their Instagram bio or their Facebook page, or you know, they just want to say that they're bro staff mountain ops bro staff uh sportsman's warehouse bro staff you know x y whatever you know i actually like to see those guys who are uh working for it a little bit and as a business owner i mean what's the point of having all these ambassadors potentially giving them a certain percentage off if you're not really seeing any net returns sure you know i i I know half the people in that store by name and you know it's funny because I go there for baits. I'll go there for rods and reels and rain gear. And I buy my hunting gear there too. I buy pretty much anything outdoors. I buy there. So I know most people, when I go there, I, I spend two hours in sportsman's just talking to the staff and helping sell product while I'm there. And I usually leave with nothing because I'd already forgot what I went in for. <laughs> so you know, like I said, and I even mentioned it in my bio when I when I was uh, applying as an ambassador. You know, if it wasn't for Sportsman's Warehouse, me personally, I wouldn't be where I am in fishing today. Yeah, you were talking last time that there's some old boys there that were giving you a lot of uh, specific tips and tricks and stuff like that, right? Yeah, absolutely. And I, you know, and I still, those are the same guys that still work there and I go in there. Um, I know the guy, some of their schedules and one guy in particular, I go in there on Wednesdays just to talk, you know, cause he, he only works like a day and a half a week and the rest of the time he just fishes. Well, the majority of the time I can't get out and fish as much as he does. So, you know, we swap, swap stories and tactics and kind of the areas depths time of day uh what was the weather like each time we go out i go in there every wednesday and we swap those that information and and, you know and it helps both of us yeah that's a huge knowledge transfer man how many how many days a week you think you're getting out in the winter time obviously summer winter time's a big split specifically for bass fishing but winter time stuff is it pretty slow down uh in your neck of the woods it is, you know, wintertime bass fishing. I try to get out at least twice a week. Um, it's not something that I was ever familiar with, and I had zero confidence in until this year. Um, what changed? As of 
So I, I fished my first tournament with Suba last year in February. I caught one bass in eight in eight hours. Whew. So now I go out, I can fish for three or four hours and catch maybe 10 in a few hours. And so that's how much how much my knowledge has gained in just that year. You know, knowledge of how bass move. You know, our water is super low right now, and it's going to make fish stage differently than if the water was high. We don't sure. have an influx, so they're going to be deep. We've got super clear water, so they're going to be deep. You know, it's just it's one of those things that you kind of kind of learn through time. I that's all I do is research. So and, you you attribute most of that um, knowledge? Is it is it hands-on? Is it, uh, what do you attribute that, that knowledge gain from? You think it's mostly hands-on or, or how are you learning this stuff? Talking to the guy at Sportsman's, just kind of a, a mix of all of it. You know, it's a combination of everything. I, you know, I follow a lot of professional bass anglers. Um, it's one of those things, you know, I used to give people crap and like, I don't know how you can sit and watch a golf tournament. Well, I do that with every single bass tournament. I sit and, <laughs> I'll sit and watch it or I'll, if I can't watch it, I'll read the posts and like the, all the stuff afterwards. And they kind of tell you what the water was like to tell you what the weather was like, how the fish were staged, what baits they were using, what the water temperature was. They give you all of that information like from the tournament winners. And I try to apply that to my fishing all the time. You know, it's like, okay, the water's 42 degrees and clear. Okay, they had a high pressure go through or a low pressure go through. It usually, when a low pressure front moves through, it's usually a day or two after that when the fish really start to get active again. So it, it's, all, it's all a timing thing. And I would have never learned that if it wasn't for, you know, the old guy, his sportsman and some of the guys I fish with and YouTube and, you know, it's a combination of all of it and really studying it. And then, then you get that firsthand experience of, okay, I caught my biggest bass at this time of night or this time of day on this bait. And this was what the weather was like. This is what the weather was like a couple of days before you kind of keep a log of all that stuff. Yeah. Are you, are you writing that stuff down or like keeping a note on your phone or are you doing some like legitimate documentation or just kind of remembering it? No. Yeah. So when I, when I have an epic day like that, so like my, my, uh, my first tournament win, it was a night tournament. We caught 25 pounds. That was our, our limit for five fish. It was epic. Unreal. We caught like 50, 52 bass that night. Wow. And, you know, we were throwing back four pounders. Are we talking and, legitimately night, like nightfall? The whole yeah. Deal? So we, we started at, what did we start at seven o'clock at night and fished until four in the morning or three in the morning? Oh my goodness. It was, it was amazing. It was epic. So I take photos of all of those and it's, it's linked to the time the weather, all of that stuff. So I can look back and go, okay, this tournament was epic and the water level was low. 
but there was enough vegetation in the water. Those fish were staged super shallow and everyone else thought they were going to be deep because, you know, it was in August or July. And that's like a hundred and something degrees down in your neck of the woods, right? We're talking like hundred. Right. So everybody's thinking they're going to be deep, sure. but the water was, I mean, everything was just perfect. The water temperature, the water level with just a little bit of grass still up, up in the shallows and some, the, some of the biggest bass, they were up there feeding. So I happened to the day before when I was pre-fishing, I found a school of bait fish, like a mega school, like. It took up the entire screen of my sonar. It was that big. Well, are we talking shad or what kind of bait fish? They're they're not shad. They're I think they were small crappie because okay. they were little tiny dots. But it was like the whole screen. So some of the fish I was catching, they were actually spitting these these up. And I don't know if they were tiny crappie or bluegill or they, they have like a a green sunfish here too. Mm-hmm. That almost looks like a a cross between a bass and a bluegill. It's kind of weird. Mostly like panfish type of bait. Yeah. yeah. Yep. And so that's where we focused. We stayed we stayed there pretty much the last half of the tournament, and that's where we did most of our damage. You know, as the sun was starting to go down, we caught a bunch on top water around rocks. Um, it was just it was an epic night. So, so yeah, I keep a log with, with all my photos for those times, mm-hmm. and I kind of know what the weather was like. So I, I know kind of in the summertime if it's going to be a good bite or a bad bite. Gotcha. Based on, you know, prior fishing trips. Yeah, sure. I mean, uh, it's it's kind of like anything. Once you start doing it enough, it becomes second nature, second hand. But the i think the the catalyst for a lot of people's is what you're talking about is that be, that beginning stage you know once you've done it 5 years 10 years whatever the the time it takes you to kind of get it down is that that's easy but it's that beginning stage you know it's the how do you pick up that information how did you document it you know after after you do it a while sure super easy but i think a lot of people specifically hunting related, but I think bass fishing is, or really any fishing is kind of that same way outdoors in general is kind of that way is, um, I mean, you can look at it through the numbers, um, at least with hunting as the population of hunters get older, it's harder to get kids outside because, you know, the younger or the older people, excuse me, aren't, uh, volunteering their time or their their knowledge or anything like that so props to that old guy at sportsman's for um you know giving you his time a day and and doing a little bit of knowledge transfer because you know as i get into fatherhood here soon in a few months that's one of my biggest deals is that knowledge transfer it's uh teaching the next generation not only about the animals but how to be passionate out there you know it 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 takes a little bit of uh passion to deal with a day like you had in february that you caught one fish in eight hours to get to the point where a few months down the road you're catching 50 some odd bass you know what i mean if you you could have just quit so it takes a little bit of of passion sure a little bit of gur or whatever you want to call it but that knowledge transfer from the older generation i think is 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 imperative man you know 
you know, it, it's huge. It, it's everything. And, and, you know, I can relate it back to my sobriety. Even when I first got sober, I went to AA and AA program. It was all old guys that had been sober for like 10 plus years. So there was one guy that was sober for like 52 years. Dude, that's longer than like, I've been alive. Shit. <laughs> yeah. I'm like, holy shit. If they can do it, I can do it. Right. Yep. It's that knowledge transfer and the support you have, not even just the knowledge transfer, but the support from the old guys. It's huge. You know, when I first started getting into bass fishing, tactical bass and on, on YouTube taught me pretty much everything up to that point when I started, you know, really becoming social with some other older, the older generation of bass fishermen, they taught me everything I knew about bass fishing. When I, when I lived in the grand, I bought my first base bait caster. I used to stand in the front yard and just practice casting. Trying not and, to get that bird's nest and whatnot. <laughs> yeah. You know, it's one of those things. I immediately grew attached to bass fishing. And I used to do it as a kid when I lived here before. And it was just walking the banks with a spinning rod. I didn't know what the hell I was doing, but I caught fish and I loved it. And then when I was able to come here and, you know, I started, I fished my first tournament with my dad. It was a, it was a team tournament. And that was three years ago. And I think we finished like second to last. Cause I had no idea what I was doing. We were fishing a night tournament and we just, I just had no idea what I was doing. I threw one bait all night and so did my dad. And it was just, it was discouraging. I'm like, God, I don't know if I want to do this. And then it was at that, at that moment when I was like, no. So I went back in the daytime and kind of broke down where I was fishing and kind of broke down where broke down where the tournament was won and how the tournament was won was on fucking topwater. They were throwing a topwater frog up dirt shallow and I was fishing in 45 feet of water because I didn't know. Sure. So I, I immediately started taking some of those tips, looking at tournament standings, um, talking to people who did well in the tournament, how they were fishing, where they were fishing. And, you know, it, it's one of those cool things about the, the tournament series that I fish here is people are pretty secretive during a tournament, but after they, they'll just tell you what, everything because they want somebody to compete against. They don't want They're not just out there for the plaque or the money or whatever. The whole idea is to grow the sport. And that's why I like this tournament series so much. Um, but that's just kind of where I blossomed, blossomed. I started researching every ounce of information that I could. You know, it's, and, inter it's interesting thinking about, um, you know, volunteering time and in our generation and stuff. If, if you look back just a generation ago, even it seems like trout clubs, bass clubs, archery clubs, you know, fill in the blank club was a really big deal. And it seems like that's dissipating in our generation. And I don't know, I don't have an answer for it. I don't know why that is, but you know, a lot of those club style meetings and events where a lot of that knowledge transfer happens, um, it just, it's not happening anymore. You know, it seems like our generation is maybe more competitive with the knowledge than the older 
generation is? I don't know. What do you think about that? Uh, I don't know. I think um, geographical as well. Because here, I mean, just in the state of Utah, there's just put on through local local venues, there's nine ice fishing tournaments this year. And it's for all ages. They have some fantastic prizes, rods and reels, sonars, you know, cameras, anything that you can imagine for ice fishing in these giveaways. And it's like a $25 entry fee. Because the whole idea is if you keep your entry fees low, you're going to gain more interest from novice anglers as well as seasoned anglers that are, you know, maybe maybe in their 70s that used to fish a lot. And it's like, okay, they have an opportunity to go out there and fish for a little bit of something while having fun and gaining some knowledge, being around family, being around with their kids or grandkids or grandparents, whatever the case may be. And, you know, I think a lot of it has to do with how um, – I think a lot of these uh, these bigger sponsorships and stuff with companies that put on tournaments are in it for the money. And, and that's one of the reasons I don't fish this other, that other tournament series so much. Um, I, I fish it maybe twice a year because the payouts are higher, the entry fees are much higher, but they keep a much larger portion for themselves of the tournament entry fees. Our tournament series much lower cost, much lower cost to be a member, and 100% of it is paid back to the to the tournament anglers. That's Plus, awesome. they have giveaways and stuff like that at the end of every tournament from Sportsman's Warehouse and other sponsors. So, you know, a lot of it's, I think some of it boils down to greed. Some of it boils down to, you know, who's running like tournament directors or I'm not even really sure what else it could be, but you know, living here, there's huge opportunities. Um, so I'm also a member of the first, ha- first hunt foundation. And what that does is you become a volunteer to take a child that hasn't, doesn't have a father or doesn't have a mother or even just doesn't have the means to get out and hunt and fish. If they drew a tag and wanted to do that, they can look you up and you take them out and teach them that. That So they have all these cool programs that most of them are volunteer programs, but the, the genuine um, thought behind it is there, you know, they, they want to carry that tradition on. And that's one of the cool things I really love about living in Utah is they have a ton of opportunity for that. Yeah, that's that is uh, what did you say that foundation is again? First, it's hunt? The, yeah, it's the first hunt foundation. Very cool. No, I, I like hearing that stuff, man. I like, you know, maybe you're correct. Maybe it is a geographical thing. And, you know, being in Eastern Oregon, being so rural and stuff, you don't see it as much as you would in, in Southern Utah or whatever. But I like hearing that stuff. I, I really hope that the outdoor community as a whole, um, and I think I've seen the shift in the past few years, but I, but I hope we stop being so competitive with everything, locations, um, knowledge, gear, you know, 
all of that stuff. Because really, I mean, hunting started out as a necessity, but I think it's retained, or hunting and fishing, it started out as a necessity way back in the day when that's what you were eating. But I think it's retained its prestige because of that community, that brotherhood, that sisterhood, you know, being able to go out there with your grandma, grandpa, buddies, wife, whatever. And I think that's what's going to keep us around in this crazy world that we live in in 2022 um we absolutely have to band together a little bit you know uh there's too many entities that are kind of coming on both sides to try to cancel this and cancel that and um man if we all got together a little bit more brought some young people in or uh, people that don't have the same amount of opportunities in and that's how we're going to save this whole thing and keep it going and make sure that your kids as kids as kids are enjoying bass fishing at night just like you you know yeah absolutely you know some of some of the things that fishing has brought me you know i some of my my two best friends really the only two people that i even hang out with here in utah are people that i met at the boat ramp they're both my fishing partners i've fished several tournaments with both these guys and it all started from a conversation at the boat ramp that was it yep and, you know, it's just carried on and we help each other when we need it. You know, we, we camp together, we fish together, we travel together when we do fish out tournaments elsewhere. And, you know, we just kind of, we kind of try to pass that on any way we can. And it's just, it appalls me that people try to take that away. <laughs> it's incredible, man. Um, I, in it, you know, I think years ago, I was very jaded towards those people, whoever they are, you know, he's they, but whoever those people were that were trying to take away those, those freedoms, those rights. But as I get a little bit older, I start to see it from their perspective a little bit. And I kind of, I don't want to say I feel sorry for them, but what I think is it's, it's it's a lack of knowledge. I think if you only are on social media, YouTube, heck even you know sportsman's channel or whatever it there are some great uh pages and shows and websites that will show both sides of you know it's not just killing and stuff and and as a as a whole we've done a little bit better but i i think those most of those people i think some of it is going down to greed and and whatever but i think a lot of it a lot of those people they just don't understand the why behind it yeah, there's a total misconception that, you know, we do it, we, we like to kill because it's fun. Mm-hmm. It, it's, it goes way, way, way beyond, you know, just having a good time. Well, shoot, even if you think about uh, tournament fishing, you know, there's been, I wouldn't say a lot, but there has been a lot of, or some talk about um, how much they're, they're injuring fish and stuff like that. And sure, there's probably some tournaments that do a terrible job of it. But like you were saying previously, a lot of that is to get people outside, to get them into the sport, to reach more people. It's not about injuring fish. I mean, honestly, I think fishermen probably know and care about that certain species of fish or fish in general, really, more than the vegan or the person who's trying to take away uh, water rights and, you know, X, Y and Z. Sure. You know, I think we talked about this last time we did a podcast together is the fact that tournament anglers kill so many fish. 
Well, that's true to an extent. You're going to have a pretty good mortality in, in, in any, anytime you pull a fish out of the water, you yes. know, whether you're there shocking the fish to count the fish to see what the population is like, I'm sure there's some mortality there as well. So it's not just fishermen, but, you know, we've made it a point. So we had that, that tournament where we had 25 pounds that night. We had a lot of big fish that bellied up on the release. They were all fine. And I don't know if it was due to stress or what the case may be, but we lost a lot of quality fish that night. And after that, the very next tournament, we sat down and had a meeting before the tournament. There was a lot of new people that fished that tournament. There was a lot of people that we had never met before. And they were, they continued to fish our tournament series. So that very next tournament that we had, we had this big powwow meeting about how to properly care for fish. So, you know, we use fizz needles. We use ice in our live wells. We use um, live well treatments. All of that stuff now, that very next tournament, we had zero dead fish on release. That's what it's about, man. I mean, and even just the uh, even just the idea of caring about it. You know, I think that's uh, something that somebody who's not into the tournament scene or into the fishing scene or outdoor scene, they probably don't realize the conversations that are having that are happening behind closed doors about that. Absolutely. You know, it, that, it's that's it's at our forefront it, because if if we continue to kill fish not only are we not going to be permitted to fish these tournaments, but we're not going to have a tournament of fish because there won't be any fish left. But we right. have to properly care for them at all costs, you know? And me being on the presidency now, everybody in the tournament has my phone number as well as the president's phone number, the, the director. If at any point in time they have a fish, say it's a large fish and they know they're going to want to weigh that fish in and it's struggling, they can call us at any point during the tournament and we will go weigh that fish for them. So they get it back in the water healthy. I like seeing that. I like seeing that a lot. Yeah. That's part of it. We don't want to lose, especially those quality fish. It takes a long time for them to get to where they are and we want to continue their genetics. Yeah. Is it, um, is it common? I have seen in a few really, really big uh, bass tournaments that uh, they have like a, a referee or a, a professional weigher there. Have you, have you, are you familiar with that? Have you seen that stuff? Yeah. So we actually dabbled in that a little bit. The problem is, is you can't get enough volunteers to do that. And we're not big enough to pay those referees. Like some of those tournaments. Sure. I like it. I really, really do. Yeah. Because you're not packing it. So a tournament I fished in Havasu, the majority of our fish were caught early in the day. It ended up being 104 degrees that day. We packed those fish around for like seven to eight hours in a live well in the heat. I didn't have enough ice. The ice melted halfway through the day. And, you know, you're putting a ton of stress on those fish. Had we had a way to weigh and release those fish immediately, it, the whole situation would have been better. It's a systematic issue, man. I mean, honestly, yeah. I mean, of course you have to rely on volunteers from a, from afar. I wish that there was a better system, you know, a a scale that was hooked up to something that would let you remotely 
um, putting your weight, you know what I mean? Or uh, if you've got to keep the cameras on there, you could have some accountability and, you know, you have a scale hooked up to some sort of Bluetooth uh, tracking device that would allow you to, you know, record your weight, um, record it on, on the video. So, you know, you're not throwing weights in there or whatever. And, uh, you know, of course that's a naive thought, but. um, Well, no, 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 but it happens. It, it does, and that's the that's the shitty thing about it is that was so the last tournament we 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 tried something different. We issued we actually ordered like fifty scales, fifty weigh bags, and everything, and handed them out to each team. Said, okay, everybody's scale is exactly the same. It's all calibrated the same. All of the bags weigh the same. We want you to video you weighing your fish and re- releasing your fish save the video, send it to us in order to get credit. Well, the problem is you don't have enough data speed and storage for the sheer amount of numbers that you get coming in. Because, so, as a as the vice president and the tournament director, the, the other guy, the president, we fish the tournaments as well. So we're trying to keep track of our videos, their videos. It's almost to the point where we need a volunteer crew that just sits back and doesn't fish to be able to get all those numbers in. And and we don't have that yet. Uh, We're not, our tournament series isn't quite big enough to start that way yet, but we're working on it. Yeah. Well, that's good to hear though. I mean, I like hearing, um, you know, you're pushing, you're pushing the envelope as far as, uh, um, morbid morbidity rates and efficiency you know that, that's that's how we get to a point in maybe 10 years five years whatever the the time is that um it's it's sustaining a zero percent loss when you're fishing tournaments you know yeah and you know and that's that's really what we'd like to see i don't know if that that goal is 100 percent attainable just you know for the simple fact that you know some fish regardless of how you treat them they're gonna die you know you might catch a fish with six, if you caught a 16 pound fish chances of him surviving after a fight are pretty slim just because he is or she is you know it, it's an old <laughs> I, I like to say out of shape because they get that big because they're just kind of stagnant they sit on the bottom they eat the leftover dead shad they don't chase bait they just kind of sit in a hole and when you're fighting him, you know, you just catch a 16-pounder and you fight him for X amount of time, there's a pretty likely chance that he's going to die. Yeah. And, and no, it's just, it's, that's fishing. It's unfortunate, but. Yeah. Well, I mean, there's kind of a couple ways you can chase it, too. You know, I mean, shoot, that is that is fishing. And even if it was a recreational fisherman, same thing's going to happen. You know, of course, it's almost more on the uh, – it's more on keeping a sustainable amount of fish in the lake to respawn the next spring and, and continue to grow and prosper. You know what I mean? You're always going to, whether it's tournaments or recreational or whatever, you know, if it wasn't you in a tournament who caught that 16 pounder, it could have been a four year old who it's his first fish and didn't know how to handle it correctly. Let it get on the bank. And right. You're, you're always going to have, have those, uh, those issues with dead fish. And And I don't think, I don't think that uh, 
large bout large mouth bass numbers are anywhere close to the endangered species act in america you know i think that we've got a decent number of them here there and everywhere you know yeah you know not at all and eh, when you're talking about sustainability and having healthy fishers and stuff that's one of the things that we've really tried to work with with our dnr guys our biologists because you know we have in the the lake that is closest to my house we have an overpopulation of fish the fish in my opinion are stunted growth you know when you go out there and you catch 50 fish in a day and the biggest one is two pounds there's an issue there because just five years ago you could go out and catch multiple four or five pounders in a day those fish are now dying off from being over competed against with these smaller more aggressive fish that don't even allow the chance for the bait to get you know whether it's a crawfish or a small bass or bluegill or whatever those smaller fish are just that much more quick and aggressive that it's actually hurting the fishery (laughs) yeah no i mean you see it you see it everywhere you see it in uh, forestry you see it in heck even uh deer elk you know all all the ungulate species it's you know i don't know if it's the same thing in fishing but the carrying capacity of that lake is is too full you know they've they've reached maximum carrying capacity and now they're uh now they're hurting themselves so yeah i mean it's it's the same thing with predator management man you know if if we don't absolutely predators same thing's going to happen to the ungulates um so yeah i mean i don't know i don't think that the tournament scene at least from from my far thousand foot view i don't think it's hurting fish man and especially if you guys are having those conversations internally about um saving as many as possible i mean obviously there's going to be a percentage that like you said, they're, they're going to get lost no matter what. But um, think about even in the local scene, I'm sure that that's going to drive more traffic, uh, more traffic in bait shops. You know, the local economy is probably going to get up a little bit. So you can kind of do the, you know, the weighing of what's what's winning here. And, and you know, I think tournaments bring a little bit of money into that local economy, which is huge. They do. And, and you know, it's funny, you know, going back to what you were saying earlier about the the misconception that people have or the misunderstanding they have about um, people that fish tournaments or hunt or anything like that. I think, like you said, I think we care more than a lot of the other people because it's it's people like you and I and the rest of the community that hunts and fishes and lives for the outdoors that are doing more to try to better things well i mean as an example um you know not to put them on blast but when's the last time you saw PETA do a wildlife cleanup absolutely you, you know I've, i personally have never seen it you typically see local dnrs or uh fish and feathers volunteer groups you know uh locally for us like oregon backcountry hunters and anglers have done a bunch um it's typically just the hunters and anglers that are actually doing that type of stuff but i mean yeah that's that's the that's the knowledge transfer that's what this podcast is meant to be is uh not just specifically for 
people like us because I don't want to really be in an echo chamber of just people regurgitating the same thoughts that I have, but it's to reach out to some of these people. Um, I personally know some, some listeners, you know, like when Kayla's family listens to this, they don't really hunt, they don't really fish. And so I feel like if it's only 1% of 1% of 1%, if one person gets to the understanding that, no, it's not for the killing. It's not just for a cool picture on the gram. It's for a lot more, you know, and, and uh, not only for the joy of it, but it's it's the enrichment of life. It's the skills and knowledge that you can learn past just outdoors stuff. You know, think about how much you learned about meteorology just with fishing or how Absolutely. much you learned about mechanics because of the outboard or how much field craft stuff you learned during fishing. And um, you, you learn a heck of a lot, man. Yeah, and absolutely, you know, this whole fishing thing started as a way to help keep me sober. You know, I moved here, I was three months sober when I moved from LaGrande, and I had to find something to do. And that was kind of my way, it, it kept me sober long enough to where I could, I felt comfortable being sober. Sure. So no, we're going to get into, we're going to get into that story. Um, the next time I have you on the podcast, I like to keep these about an hour long and I want to get into, um, the next time, which I'll book it here with you in a little bit, but I want to get into the story, kind of leave a, leave a cliffhanger for, um, for the next one. Uh, but I want to get into that story a little bit, a little bit of your background. Um, some of the the sobriety stuff we talked about it a little bit um the last podcast which was like a freaking year ago so i'd like to do these a little bit more um frequently but no definitely want to talk about we're going to keep that as a little bit of a cliffhanger because i think your story specifically is a really awesome um anecdotal story to to get people into the outdoors you know, I, I think uh, I've heard a lot of different tales and a lot of it comes from, you know, generational stuff. You learn from your dad and that's just what we did. And sure, you fished with your dad and, and hunted with your dad. But I think your story alone can get a lot of people who haven't done any of this um, to kind of go out and try. Go even get a bobber and a worm and a single hook, you know, nothing crazy you don't need the bass boats and the sonars now that's cool and once you get passionate about it you know you can move up there but um just the beginning of that stuff we're getting them interested in listening to podcasts like this and and watching some youtube and stuff like that um i think your story specifically um is motivating to a lot of people sure uh, you know i'd be happy to talk with you and get into that backstory and kind of how things progressed for me over time and where i started I would love to talk about it. Well, cool, man. Um, like I said, I'll book that with you here in just a little bit. But uh, for the people listening, where where can they find you? Kind of give uh, kind of give a rundown of where everybody can find you, follow you. You know, I just use the main account at Soberdube Fishing on Instagram. Um, I try to just keep it mainstream right there. I, I I'm not a big twitter guy i i facebook family and that's about it i try to keep it that simple so that's where you can find me sober dude fishing on instagram all right Jimmy. yes sir well i appreciate your time we will do this here much sooner than 
a year from now, like the last one. <laughs> right on, brother. I'm looking forward to it. All right. Thank you, man. Have a good evening. All right. You too, man. Take care. Later. Bye.